Coinciding with this week's launch event of the 2020 Global Terrorism Index at ASPE, Leanne Close spoke with Peter Lowe, Principal Consultant at Phronesis Consulting. Peter has over 15 years experience working with young people involved with the justice system. She discusses countering violent extremism in youth populations and outlines some of the key risks for radicalization and strategies for awareness and prevention. Welcome, Peter, and thanks so much for joining me today. Um, your work of many years is focused on young people involved in violent extremism and identifying strategies to divert them from these sort of extremist views or actions. And I know that in some of the Australian research, you've looked at several risk factors have been identified in studies involving young people who'd either committed or been convicted of terrorism-related offences. Just wondering if you could outline some of those to us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Leanne. Um, yes, so some of the recent research has really reinforced, I guess, what we already knew in the space about some of the push-pull and personal factors. But I think what it does is highlight for us, particularly in an Australian context, some of the areas where we have to be uh, most aware of the risks and of the vulnerable young people as well. So things like being dislocated socially. So that is disengagement from school, for example. And I know we have a large number of young people in Australia who really sit on the edge of education um, and who the, their attendance at education is such a, a positive factor for them that we really need to work to keep them in. Because once they're dislocated from that education system, they lose their social network. Uh, they lose their ability to have information given to them that might be different to the information that they've already received. And so there's a couple of reasons why staying engaged in that education system is really important. Some of the other things that the study highlighted, which again, I think, you know, it's just really good to be reinforced, is that um, that kind of active involvement in the online space is a real risk factor for our young people. Internet, social media, online space is moving so quickly and keeping up with what young people are doing online becomes particularly difficult for parents. Yes. So even parents who are really well-intentioned at remaining vigilant about their young person's social media use can really quickly fall behind in where their young kids are at. And it's been an area that many groups have recognised as being really important for targeting that narrative to young people because they spend so much time there and because their perception of the real world has blurred so far into what happens on social media. So I know my 15-year-old son thinks every one of his friends on uh, Facebook is his friend, even though he's never physically met them. So there's a real disconnect between, I guess, you know, my generation's experience of connection and social connection and our children and young people's experience of that. Such an important point, particularly friends, family especially, are the ones who may pick up some of these triggers and signs uh, and if they don't quite understand the online environment and, and what their children are engaging in and the sorts of information they're accessing, yeah. it makes it really difficult um, to pick up those signs really early. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. There's also um, issues, sorry, yeah. around um, their, their connection in real life. So it's not just what they're doing on social media that can um, that can be a risk factor for young people. And often, you know, it's it's kind of chicken and egg. Do they start being introduced to, to a concept and a thought online and a narrative and then seek that out in the real world or is it vice versa? But definitely friends and peers. We've known for a very long time with children and young people because of all of the developmental things that happen to adolescents, uh, they tend to be far more influenced by peers and others in their social networks and family. And so those negative influences in their peer group and being influenced by people who may already be starting to explore or be exposed to violent extremist narratives is a real risk factor for many young people as well. And I think it's also important, young people absolutely much more vulnerable and probably 
could be become radicalised quickly through those means. But adults too, we see it with a lot of the conspiracy myths uh, that are circulating online and, and how people can quickly um, get engaged and, and feel they're a part of that community. So again, vigilance for everybody is really important. But I know there's also several factors that you've identified that contribute to some resilience around these sorts of violent extremism tendencies or ideology and beliefs. Can you just outline some of those for us? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's a whole bunch of kids that fall into what would look like a, a risk category if we looked at only the risk factors. And, and the question that, that kind of some of the research in Australia has looked to answer is what actually keeps some of those kids away from violent extremism? So we want to we want to look at that group as well. And so some of the things which we know build resilience for young people against that is that cultural identity and connectedness. So understanding their, their connectedness with their culture and or their family of origin and or their, uh, their feeling and experience of belonging to a particular group. So if they feel a connectedness with a particular group, that's a real resilience factor. Being able to have trust in people outside of them. And it, and, and it doesn't necessarily mean trust in the government, but it could be trust in a local sporting coach um, or trust in a teacher at school or trust in another parent. You know, they might hang out with a group of friends and one of their parents is someone that they trust. So it's that, that ability to kind of build and maintain a relationship that for them is trustworthy. Um, there's also that um, ability to connect as well to kind of organisations and government organisations in particular was identified in the study. And that's really about have they had a positive experience? You know, many of the young people that I worked with previously in youth justice in New South Wales, uh, some of the only positive experiences they had with police were um, during PCYC activities. Mm. But it still gave them that really strong connection or belief that at least some of the police were okay. And that's what we're talking about, that kind of resilience that we can build some of those positive relationships with government organisations or government individuals, representatives. I think um, one of the more important ones, particularly for young people in this day and age, is having a willingness and an ability to speak out against violence. Um, you know, there are uh, levels of acceptance and tolerance of violence in our community and amongst our young people. And, you know, I have to be careful because I've got a quite skewed perspective of the population of young people having worked with young offenders for such a long period of time. But there is a higher level of tolerance for violence in that community. So one of the real protective factors is being able to speak out against that, is recognising that violence is not okay as a way of achieving a goal. And it doesn't matter how big that goal might be. It may be that I want the sneakers that you're wearing and I can't afford them. Uh, or it may be that I need you to believe something that I believe. So having that ability not only to, to know that violence is not okay but to be able to communicate that um, is a real resilience factor for young people. I think that's such an important point. I think violence in our Australian community is pretty high. Um, a lot of it's uh, led by alcohol abuse, drug abuse and other things. So I think some important messages for our community leaders, for government and others in how we can reduce violence right, and have those lessons right from a young age. So probably on that note, what are some of the recommendations in terms of what your studies have identified, what your work's identified that you'd want government or our communities to consider some of the work that still needs to be done? I don't think it's any surprise that early intervention is the best. Prevention and particularly diversion is far more successful and, and anyone kind of working in the space will will agree that it's far more successful. Yes, we need rehabilitation and we need, you know, reintegration and we certainly need the, the harder CT options available. 
but we also need to invest much, much earlier. And that's no different than any other kind of uh, social issue that we've dealt with in the past. It's about what are some of the things that we can do to promote and build these resilience factors across the population. And there's some simple things for me that can be done. Firstly, we actually have to educate young people. So a few years ago, we... we um, delivered a pilot program within Youth Justice uh, in conjunction with a couple of non-government organisations around just identifying for them if one of their friends was starting to say some things that might concern them. That kind of peer monitoring and mentoring around it. How would a young person these days know if they're being approached, uh, groomed by an, an extremist online? And particularly talking with people who have come out of that space who were recruiters um, for many different organisations, that's one of the things that they really look for. Who can I target my narrative to? Who's going to buy into that? And then how much more can I feed them? So if you've got people in, the, in that space and other peers who can recognise that, uh, we're starting at the very early end. We're recognising that someone is being targeted for that narrative very early on. And it's not dissimilar to other approaches where we do that education piece first. We start to identify, it's like stranger danger. You know, what are the things that you might need to know and need to look out for? Cybersecurity and awareness is something that we should be teaching our young people anyway. And I think really surprisingly, even though young people spend such a lot of time online, they don't really understand the space. They don't understand the algorithms. They don't understand the fact that, um, you know, you'll can consistently be fed information that you search for so you get a very skewed perspective of the information that's out there they don't really understand how to keep themselves safe online so I think some of that work will globally have a positive impact on young people because it keeps them safe from a range of risks including the risk of violent extremism and as you said there's a high level of trust um, in digital natives our kids who have just grown up with um, using social media and connecting online so the more education we can have um, for adults as well as our young people the better it's going to be yeah. so thank you so much for joining us today thank it's you. great to speak with you yes thank you you're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. President-elect Biden has been moving quickly since the election, establishing a climate envoy position on the National Security Council and detailing his ambitious climate plans. This has sent the signal that the US is truly back in the climate space and is serious about combating climate change. Anastasia Capetis speaks with Dr. Christian Downey, Australian Research Council Fellow at the Australian National University. They discuss Biden's climate goals, how this will impact US domestic and foreign policy, and what the implications might be for Australia. I'm here with Christian Downey. He's a fellow at ANU and he specialises in global climate and energy policy. And today we really wanted to explore the new Biden order on climate change. What is that going to look like from a global diplomatic perspective? What effect is it going to have on US foreign policy? And then what are some of the implications, of course, you know, for Australia too? So welcome, Christian. Well, thanks very much for having me and such an important topic. And I think for anyone interested in climate change right now, a really, really good news story that the Democrats have retaken control of the US White House. A Biden administration, I think, is going to completely transform, obviously, the domestic politics in the US, but also the international politics, including for countries like Australia. But it's important just to take a step back. The Biden administration is going to have the most progressive position on climate change that the US has ever had in its history. He's already laid out a $2 trillion 
clean energy and infrastructure plan, a commitment to rejoin the Paris Agreement, and a commitment to net zero emissions by 2050. So that's more ambitious than what President Obama put forward. So I think that's really going to shift mm-hmm. uh, international momentum. That comes on the back, of course, of a number of the largest emitters in the world, including China, South Korea, and Japan, all announcing commitments to net zero. What that is going to do is upend global climate politics. And for countries like Australia, it's going to put us in a difficult position if we continue to take an obstructionist position. So in more practical terms, how can Biden achieve his aim of of putting climate at the centre of US foreign policy? He's also on record recently as saying Paris is not enough, that he kind of wants to remake this particular kind of climate agreement, perhaps in its entirety, more ambitious targets, bigger commitments, um, a new grand bargain with China. These are all things that climate commentators are, are talking about. So as you say, it's not just m- much more ambition than Obama, but globally uh, taking that ambition to the global scene and saying, okay, none of that was enough. We're actually going to have to make a much bigger effort uh, than we thought. Do you think that's where they're going to be aiming for next year? Yeah, I think you're completely right. I mean, you've got to remember what we've come from, right? We've come from a President Trump who's denied the science, called it a hoax, blame it on the Chinese, to a president who takes the climate science seriously, who looks like he will um, appoint a cabinet-level figure such as former Secretary of State John Kerry to take a special envoy role. And they're going to be looking for other countries to take more ambitious positions. So what I assume we'll see the US do is to reach out uh, to Europe, to reach out potentially, I would think, to China as well, as well as countries such as Japan, and bring together a type of coalition of the willing or a smaller climate club and put pressure on all of those countries to put forward more ambitious targets, more ambitious domestic commitments to reduce emissions and reduce emissions more quickly than they may otherwise have in the past. Once those big emitters come on board, US, China, Europe, and all agree to more ambitious targets, there's going to be a slipstream that other countries will have to follow if they want to keep up. So obviously Biden's credibility on this will be um, uh, much helped if he can do a lot domestically, but he's facing a hostile, probable, probably a hostile Senate if those two Georgia seats don't swing the Democrats' way. What can Biden do um, without Senate approval? Yeah, it's a really good question. And as you said, we're all going to wait to see what happens in January in Georgia. But let's assume that they don't win both those seats, which is probably where you'd put your money if you were betting. The thing to note, firstly, is that all the things that we've discussed he can do without controlling the Senate. So Biden can rejoin the Paris Agreement. That doesn't require Senate ratification. But things he can't do, he's unlikely to be able to legislate a carbon price. Uh, We saw that during President Obama's years in 2010 when he put forward what was known as the Waxman-Markey Bill, an attempt to introduce Mm -hmm. a price on carbon and the Republicans blocked it in the Senate. I would assume those politics remain in place today. But the thing to also note is it's not that a carbon price is a silver bullet, given that the window to act on climate change is closing so fast. So what we need are ambitious targets and ambitious mandates for the power sector, transport sector, manufacturing sector, backed up with billions of dollars in government investment. Fortunately, this is precisely what uh, President-elect Biden is planning to do, and he can do all of that without controlling the Senate, using the executive powers of the government to implement a whole range of regulatory measures. We also saw Obama take that approach when he got defeated in the Senate in his first term, he used regulatory action in his second term. And I think President-elect Biden has learnt that lesson and will go down that path early on if he hasn't have control of the Senate. Talking about what Biden, you know, can do, um, 
obviously he can use corona stimulus spending um, because the Senate will have to pass some sort of stimulus budget uh, and directing that into green technology, uh, green infrastructure um, will be really, really helpful. But if it can't pass laws, perhaps it can negotiate industry standards that won't have the force of law, but nonetheless is in the interest of certain industries to comply with. And I'm just thinking here of the examples of auto manufacturers, which under Trump, Trump said, you know, we're going to get rid of these these onerous standards that Obama has imposed. And the automakers went, you know, that makes us really uncompetitive globally. So thanks, no thanks. Is that a possibility? Yeah, look, I completely agree. I think it's more than a possibility, right? Because uh, if you go and have a look at Biden's climate plan, he's actually, as you say, he's talking about fuel efficiency standards in there. So he doesn't set a particular standard, but he said that he's going to set out ambitious fuel economy standards for cars. He's also said that, you know, all American built buses are going to be zero emissions by 2030. They're going to put public money into electric vehicle charging stations. But using these types of regulatory tools like standards for cars, they can be voluntary, but they can also be mandatory. And so they can they can have the backing of, of law. Um, and I think this will really shift, obviously, emissions from the transport sector. The other thing in that space is getting Trump out of the White House, which Biden's done, actually frees up California to achieve its target that all new cars be zero emissions by 2035. Yeah, good point. Now, that was something that Trump had been impeding uh, for a number of years. California is obviously the largest state. I'm pretty sure it's the largest car market in the US, one of the largest car markets in the world. Um, So allowing California to set its own zero emission standards for cars is really going to shift the car industry and with it the rest of the United States. So we don't think about some of these departments when we think about climate change, but uh, things like Treasury, the Department of Energy, all of the uh, scientific research centres that have had their climate change uh, research either stripped from them or misrepresented on various websites or disappeared from various websites, all of that gets restored as well. Yes, and I think what we'll see straight away is an administration that respects the science. I think that's going to be the most important change. At the moment, we've seen an administration that doesn't only ignore the climate science, but it ignores the medical science on the coronavirus pandemic, and people are obviously dying as a result. Um, So we're going to see an administration that respects science, and with respect will no doubt come um, a restoration of funding, some of the funding that's been cut from key organisations such as NASA, which does some of the most important climate science work in the United States and, for that matter, the world. Uh, We'll see more funding going back into the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. So we'll have respect for the science, um, restored funding, and hopefully that will mean better knowledge of the impacts, the devastating impacts that we're seeing of climate change around the globe, but also increasingly in areas such as Florida, in the US now with rising sea levels and so forth. Um, so that's going to be a big important step and a big symbolic signal to the scientific community that your research matters and we're going to listen to it. Absolutely. And and, and again, key for the US to, to rejoining like the global scientific efforts um, around climate change as well and, and, and taking the lead again in those. The other thing that I think is interesting is all of this gives a signal to business very, and all in different ways. One of the things that's being touted at the moment is the US Federal Reserve getting much more involved um, in climate change measures to send signals to investors um, on uh, and asset managers uh, that climate risk, the true p- price of carbon needs to be reflected in stock market pricing. Uh, so I think that's another interesting area 
to, to really watch um, how fast will the US Federal Reserve act in this way. It's just joined an international group of Federal Reserve banks um, who are interested in this question and looking at how to implement various measures and standards, uh, reporting standards, um, risk standards, changing the way that, that the stock market essentially works. Mm. Well, if we're going to achieve if we're going to achieve the emission reductions we need in the in the speed that we need, the finance community is going to be vital. And as you say, the uh, global momentum here is moving really quickly. There's the G20 has sponsored the Task Force on Carbon Finance Disclosure, which is pushing mandatory reporting of carbon risks, uh, forcing industries to take account of the risk of stranded assets, for example, on their balance sheets. That momentum is only going to increase. We've already seen APRA and ASIC here in Australia uh, talk about that and start to think much more about that and making the point that this is a a threat, a risk to the stability of the global financial system and, of course, the Australian financial Mm. system too. So hopefully we'll see financial regulators move in the same way that we'll see those regulating the transport system and other parts of our economy. Yeah, interesting. The final thing I wanted to talk about today was where Biden's um, climate change ambitions in terms of foreign policy slam into geopolitical competition between the US and China. And just looking at all these you know, really great ambitions that Biden has in kind of transforming US infrastructure, for example, a lot of that technology, a lot of those, those products come from China. This China really dominates renewable energy supply chains. Is that going to be a problem? Well, this will be a really fascinating space to watch to see how the relationship between the US and China unfolds. Obviously, we all know there's growing strategic competition between both powers. One area where I think that Biden, there still will be strategic competition in trade and elsewhere, but one area where he may reach out, um, particularly given that a number of the appointees will be Obama officials who took this approach four years earlier, will be on climate change to see where they can cooperate the two countries to reduce emissions, not only in setting commitments, but also in mirroring each other's policies. The critical point, I think, and a really important point to make here is that we are not going to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. We are not going to keep global temperatures to within two degrees unless the US and China work together. If the two go it alone, it's highly unlikely that we'll be able to meet those emissions trajectories. The reason is that China now is the largest producer uh, and manufacturer of solar panels, of wind turbines, of electric vehicles, of batteries, all the technologies that we need to be manufactured at scale and at low cost to reduce emissions in the energy sector and elsewhere. Uh, Without China's manufacturing skills and cost-cutting, the globe's not going to be able to achieve the emissions reductions it needs. So it's vital that the US and China and ideally Europe too get together, cooperate and keep global supply chains open. If we see a securitization of global supply chains, particularly around those renewable energy technologies, then the world may lose its last chance to reduce emissions and meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. So for countries who want to diversify their supply chains away from China, it's a very long-term game. That's what you're saying. We can't squander this 10-year window. If we want to diversify, then we need to look beyond 2030 to make that effort stick. But in the meantime, like it or not, we depend on the Chinese supply chain. Yeah, there's a whole range of things we can do at home to improve our energy security, to improve our national security. But I think it's important that we look at ways to keep free and open trading where we can, and particularly on these renewable technologies, which are going to be vital. And it's in Australia's interest too. If we want to be a global exporter of of the critical minerals, for example, that are going to be used in these supply chains, Australia is going to benefit from global supply chains that are open and trading 
on critical minerals, just like we have from the move towards global gas markets, for example. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming in, Christian. Thanks for having me. The infamous tweet from Zhao Lijian is yet another setback in the Australia-China relationship. Dr. Jake Wallace, Ariel Bogle and Albert Zhang conducted a deep dive into the Twitter activity around this tweet and discussed the increasing weaponization of social media in the global geopolitical landscape. Albert, Ariel, we wrote a piece for uh, Aspie's strategist blog uh, this week and we were focusing on some really interesting online activity last week when Chinese MFA's most prolific tweeter-in-chief, Zhao Lijian, uh, circulated an image that was referencing the Breverton inquiry. His tweet caused quite the stir, and to the extent that the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, held a press release rapidly after the tweet was posted. Now, there's lots to talk about here. The tweet itself was really interesting. The fact that he decided to use a, a, an image that had been circula- circulating on, on Chinese social media. It was a kind of nationalistic um, artwork that uh, certainly would fit within the category of pro- propaganda, we might suggest, although I, you know, we've, we've had some interesting discussions on that in the office. But, so the tweet itself was interesting. The response was interesting, the attention it got, the fact that it drew a, a, a press conference almost immediately uh, from the Prime Minister was really significant. Um, we, we looked at, um, we were really interested in some of the activity that developed around the tweet. What You saw some interesting features early on, Ariel, didn't you? What, what sort of things were you seeing? Well, I think immediately after the tweet was sent out, I was struck by how many Australians were responding to it and trying to, I suppose, engage with the tweet, uh, suggesting, I suppose, uh, trying to highlight their conflict here. They were suggesting in general that Australia was being open and transparent about uh, allegations of war crimes in contrast, according to these tweets, to the CCP's general response around human rights. So that was one thing I thought it was potentially odd that so many Australians thought engaging in that way would serve a purpose and not just amplify a tweet unnecessarily. But then, of course, the activity sort of stats around the tweets, the number of likes, the number of retweets, the number of replies started to strike me as interesting. So I just dove in a little bit looked at some of the accounts that were liking the tweet just by hand and noticed that a lot of them had been created in November. So this tweet happened on November 30. Twitter said that they had been created November 2020. And so I ran some of them through a a tool that will let you see some of them more details around an account and noticed that some of them had been created actually on the day of the tweet shortly after the tweet went out. So that's uh, interesting behaviour uh, right there. And so Albert decided to have a dig in as well. Mm. After Ariel's great work, I thought we could approach this tweet from a more computational sort of perspective. So I went away and scraped as much as I could. So we looked at um, 606 retweets as well as 349 likes, which we had to um, manually sort of inspect um, because <clears throat> Twitter makes it so hard for people to analyse the accounts that like a particular tweet, whereas it's sort of relatively easier to sort of capture the um, people who are replying to a thread or the people who are retweeting a tweet as well. So, I already mentioned already, a lot of accounts were created quite recently. 
Um, we also looked at the sort of number of followers these accounts had, and quite a lot of them had very little followers. So 35% had, in fact, zero followers. As well as then we also looked at who they were, these accounts were following themselves. And all of them followed Dollar Gen's account, um, but also other Chinese diplomatic accounts, as well as major English media organizations and public figures like Donald Trump, which I think has some of the most followers on Twitter as well. And Joe Biden and people like that. Mm. I mean, not to speculate too heavily on why they follow such a limited amount of accounts, but if you are seeking to engage, you know, in the replies to tweets of prominent figures, it can be somewhat of an effective way to prosecute a message. So perhaps um, that explains some of that follower characteristics. Definitely. And it's almost too generic, sort of the accounts you would expect an account to follow. The major ones, you expect a bit more um, diversity in the number of accounts they would follow. So we also looked at following sort of Dolly's Jen's tweet um, and Scott Morrison's sort of response. We also noticed a bit of trolling on some of Scott Morrison's tweets as well. So we looked at one in reference to a tweet he made about the National Water Day. And this had a disproportionate amount of replies to sort of likes and retweets themselves, really. So we went away and scraped about 2,948 replies to this particular tweet. And around 72% of these replies had some sort of media, um, either that was an image or a, a, a video. And a lot of the ones which we could manually see were, in fact, actually more sort of artwork from this sort of Chinese nationalist and were very provocative. They were in a similar kind of sentiment to Zoligen's tweet, you know, poking at Morrison's request for an apology, but then these images had Morrison over a dead, I think it was an Afghani soldier, I think one of the images, so they were quite sort of graphic sort of images. But it had similar, these accounts that were replying uh, to his account displayed some similar features. So a lot of them were created recently, but not as not as many were created recently. A lot of them had very little followers as well. So I think of the sample we looked at, 25% had zero followers, but 80% had less than 10 followers. So most of them, I guess, barely interactive sort of legitimate users. And they were using words like apologize, <clears throat> shame, as well as generally being quite negatively sort of um, had negative sentiment t- towards Scott Morrison's tweet itself, really. So we, we did some analytics there. We looked at sort of sentiment of these uh, replies. We also noticed that the activity sort of peaked around 1 a.m., 1 p.m., sort of Australian daylight savings time. So that's 10 p.m. and 10 a.m. Chinese Beijing time as well. So some of the more interesting features that we sort of looked at that second tweet and I think Jake could talk more about sort of the context about how we should sort of think about these two different types of activity that occurred within a short period. It's, I think it's really interesting that the data can identify uh, what kind of traits we're seeing in terms of sets of activity because uh, there have been some suggestions that there's uh, a degree of coordination here uh, of, and when you start to talk about coordination, uh, people start to think in terms of state actors. Uh, but what we find looking at other really significant geopolitical events that have involved the Chinese state uh, is that there is a large-scale pro-China nationalistic 
um, trolling that occurs that uh, I think it's fair to say that the social media companies themselves are quite conscious of because it displays these traits of coordination. It's quite well organized. It's very nationalistic and it can amplify and engage in contentious debates uh, around political issues in countries across the region. Having said that, is it inauthentic? It's walking that fine line in that there, there may be a degree of authenticity in the actors that are driving this kind of coordinated behavior uh, without them being state-linked or, or without falling into the category of covert influence operations. But I think one of the really interesting features here and we have, in fact, seen this in attributed covert influence operations linked to the Chinese state, is that there's an effort to drive a perception of moral equivalence between China and um, what it perceives as um, critics or perhaps even strategic competitors in, in the West. So we've seen in large-scale covert influence op- operations this effort to amplify um, domestic protest in the US as a way of creating a, the perception of moral equivalence with the suppression of protest in Hong Kong. Here we're seeing Australia targeted with the same kind of approach. Um, and this is obviously um, an effort in calculated strategic communications that is designed to shape global perception and to shape international political discourse. And in many ways, it's, we've seen other events that um, identify that this kind of approach can be quite successful, even if it's only momentarily, because there are, there are, there's a range of other data that suggests that um, China's soft power is taking a bit of a hit. But um, in some ways, this kind of activity can distract or distort. So we're not talking about trade or economic coercion, we're talking about the Brereton inquiry. And I think this is a this is a new approach and we're likely to see more of it, particularly from MFA spokespeople like Zhao Li Jian, who's not known to be shy in his tweets. I'd like to finish up just by thanking Albert for your interesting analysis of the data Ariel for your uh, fantastic overview and for diving in straight after the tweet to explore these um, suspicious accounts that were popping up it's it's always worth digging into the data to, to identify um, what's happening and who's who's engaging thanks Jake thanks for speaking Jake that's all we have time for this week on policy guns and money join us next week for our final episode of the year 